This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111. Business Radio powered by the Wharton Schools. Great to have you with us. Don't forget to go to the Knowledge at Wharton website, which has a lot of great stories on a variety of topics, things happening around the globe. Knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu is the website to check out. You can also sign up for the newsletters, which come at you twice a week, Wednesdays and Fridays. All of that and much, much more at knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. We're going to talk a little bit about the Federal Reserve and the changes that the Fed has been trying to make in the wake of the financial crisis, uh, because there is a continuing want to make sure that we don't have another issue like we saw several years ago. And it deals with the bailout prevention rule. We're joined here in the studio by Peter Connie Brown, Assistant Professor of Legal Studies and Business Ethics. He's also the author of the book, The Power and Independence of the Federal Reserve. And also joining us in the discussion is uh, Alan Meltzler, who is a professor of political economy at Carnegie Mellon University and also a former Wharton professor. Mr. Meltzer, great to have you on the show, sir. Thank you very much for calling in. Hi. Great to have you. Peter, great to have you as well. Always a pleasure. Alan, great to be on this uh, program with you. Thank you very much for giving us your time, sir. Sure. Uh, Peter, let's talk about this rule because a a lot of it is the concern uh, of the bailout of, you know, will banks be bailed out again? It had, I guess, been thought that really the banking industry itself was the main focus, but we're seeing other sectors that are also being included in this as well? Sure. One thing that's more to remember about the ambition of Dodd-Frank, the legislative response to the financial crisis, is that this was the legislation to end all bailouts. This was something that's written into the statute itself. It was part of the signing ceremony, President Obama. Whatever that aspiration, that's, it, it, financial history tells us that's almost certain to fail. There will be other kinds of financial crises, sure. and the governmental responses to them are going to be probably tailored to the circumstances of that day. That day may come decades from now, centuries or, or months, uh, depending on, uh, on, on a variety of factors. So what we're talking about today, this specific rule, is fitting into the Dodd-Frank architecture because this is a part of systemic risk regulation. Mm-hmm. So what Dodd-Frank is doing is a ton of different moving parts, 20 different titles within it. The recent rule that we're talking about is something that applies very specifically to what are called qualified financial contracts, derivatives. Think yep. of them as derivatives, but yep. really whatever the FDIC defines as as a qualified financial contract. And it's saying that one thing that makes financial contagion spread so rapidly when one firm fails is a contractual provision in many derivatives that says as soon as you have a default or other triggering event, you have to pay immediately. Yep outside of bankruptcy, and that creates, of course, a run on these institutions when the triggering event occurs. And so what the new rule says is that these qualified financial contracts, if the counterparty is a regulated bank, and about 80 to 90% of all derivatives have a regulated bank as a counterparty, 
you can't have those immediate cancellation provisions anymore. Right. You got to have them more be, better adapted to what the regulators and the government view is uh, as the alternative to bankruptcy should it occur, the orderly liquidation authority mm-hmm. that Dodd-Frank created. So that idea is to stop derivatives from having to be to be themselves a trigger for spreading financial contagion, trying to relax that that pressure. So these contracts were basically allowing some of these these firms to basically get first run at, at being, you know, being uh, compensated for the losses once the once you had the the bankruptcy actually designated. Exactly, it's kind of the opposite of one of the fundamental uh, legal devices in bankruptcy, which is called the automatic stay. Yeah. So anytime you file for bankruptcy, all the creditors who've been kind of circling around the assets of the firm hungry for repayment yeah. have to stop. They have to take a break. It's an automatic stay, and that's when bankruptcy kicks in. That didn't apply to derivatives. It didn't apply to these financial firms whose uh, so many of whose liabilities were tied to derivatives. And so the cancellation of these immediate repayment clauses within in these qualified financial contracts is trying to duplicate something like the automatic stay uh, in bankruptcy, Alan, the the moves that the the Federal Reserve have have made in in the recent uh, time with the bailout prevention and and now this new uh, adjustment as well, uh, how important are they for for the the future uh, of the U.S. financial sector? Considering the fact of the you know the size of what we went through in in two thousand eight. Yes, let's step back first and. and sort of talk about what the history teaches us. You know, there have been lots of crises, so we have lots of evidence of what we can expect them to do in a crisis. Um, Did they anticipate the 1930-29-32 crisis? No. The next crisis in 37-38? No. A whole series of other crises? No. Did they anticipate 2007? No. If anything, the government, not necessarily the Fed uh, uh, contributed to it through Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. I mean, are they going to anticipate the next crisis and prevent it? The thing that we most remember about crises is that after the crisis, the government agency tells us, if only we had more power to do this or that, we would have prevented the crisis. And that hasn't changed. The whole idea that the government, that the Federal Reserve, or any other agency, clever, intelligent, smart people that they are, will anticipate the next crisis is very small. It'll come from a direction in which they are not looking. That's what happened. That's why crises blow up, because they aren't looking in the direction that the crisis is coming from. I mean, Alan Greenspan, a great Federal Reserve chairman, said, and Ben Bernanke with him, said, well, we can't have a total collapse of the commercial of a credit mortgage markets. It just doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Locally, maybe. Well, <laughs> that was just wrong. And they were as good as any people who have been at the Fed. So my answer is, we are looking at regulation as a way of solving a problem that regulation will not solve. We can regulate the mistakes of the past. We can't foresee the mistakes of the future. The way to get better protection of the public is to require 
higher capital standards, equity capital standards for banks, make the banks responsible for the losses that that are going to take place. And the way to do that is to have equity in the banks. So if the management isn't smart enough to anticipate the crisis, the principal stockholders will remind them of the responsibility. That's the way to prevent, the best way to prevent crisis. Nothing guarantees that we'll avoid a crisis. And it's just foolishness to put into the law that we're going to avoid crises in the future. Yeah, I don't. I don't disagree with Alan on 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 most of that. I think that I'm a little bit more sanguine about the idea that preventing the last crisis from recurring is a possibility. Even though Alan is exactly correct that pre- preventing all future crises from ever occurring yeah. ever uh, is uh, is I agree it's foolish and it could even be dangerous if we're sending the message that there is indeed no more risk of a kind of financial collapse to occur again because we legislated that away, then people aren't going to be, people who heed that that message are, are going to be changing their behaviors in ways that are going to be indeed causing the very thing that Alan is talking about. And he and I don't disagree at all about the idea that the the, the best and, and first front for mitigating this kind of crisis is is looking at what exactly is the architecture of financial yep. crises. Debt is the crisis, right? Debt yep. is the mechanism by which contagion is spread. And so the idea that we would change uh, to, to, to mitigate against this kind of risk, although, you, again, uh, you can't eliminate it entirely, is to change the capital structures yep. of these banks by making it so that equity, not only so that we have more better oversight from stockholders, but just so that when there is a blow on uh, on you know, be it through counterparty risk or or anything else, that there's so much of an equity buffer that you don't see that collapse. Uh, it's not as much fun if you're a, a bank executive perhaps to play with so little leverage. But but again, just to, uh, almost to, to repeat this too much, with if you diminish the leverage, you're diminishing the mechanism by which financial contagion is spread. Alan, Peter and I agree completely on this. I, the best way, you know, the former chairman of the House Financial Services Committee, which is the bank regulating committee, told me at a meeting that some of the banks went into the crisis, the last crisis, the 2008 crisis, with 2% equity, 2% equity. Yeah. The rest of their capital structure was debt to places like um, AIG. Let's well, look. so they, since they didn't have their <clears throat> equity at stake, they didn't care much about the risks that they were taking. That's a terrible system to have, yeah. to have huge banks. What was the Federal Reserve doing? Well, among other things, it was licensing banks to have subsidiaries that bought up these toxic mortgages and had no equity, none at all. And when the crisis came, the banks at first said, well, these are separate separate agencies, so we're not responsible for them. But fortunately, that didn't prevail, and they were forced to pick up the losses. 
Well, it might make for more interesting radio if Alan and I disagreed more on this, but we really don't. And in here, just to put it in a historical perspective, recall in the 1980s, the leverage buyout movement, Michael Milken, junk bonds, sure, that kind of yeah. thing, right? Yeah. This caused an extraordinary amount of both political and legal upheaval, trying to understand whether this was was economically useful, whether it was legal, whether yeah. it was ethical to load a firm up with so much debt uh, as part of its, uh, 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 you know, a, a merger strategy or an economic expansion strategy. Do you know what the leverage to equity ratios were for those Michael Milken financed no. LBOs? No. At their peak, 15 to 1. Right, eighteen to one for for some that and if, it, on the debt side. On the debt side, so yeah. debt to equity, and here yeah. Alan is just talking about a fifty to one yeah. debt. To, now, what bankers will say is, well, our business model is so very different, so it requires so much more debt. But, but it's not. It, I mean, it's 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 that I have yet to see an intellectually coherent defense of the extraordinary differences in, yeah. uh, in debt to equity ratios required by financial institutions as opposed to others. So then, uh, Alan, well, then going forward with, with these high debt-to-equity e- ratios, uh, what, does the, what does the Fed need to do further to try and, and kind of rein this in a little bit? Well, I, I wrote some time ago to my old friend Stanley Fisher, who is the vice chairman of the Fed, and said to him, look, all this regulation isn't going to do what you think it's going to do. What you want to do is increase the equity capital. And whether because of what I wrote or from other reasons entirely, the Fed has done some of that. They now have the equity capital up to around 12%, which is much better. <clears throat> Let me put this into a perspective. In the Great Depression, 1929 to 32, the worst period in American economic history in the worst period for banks that we've ever experienced. The New York, not a single large New York bank failed. They had 15 to 20% equity capital. That was before the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. They're not protected by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation because they're too big. So they should have, in my opinion, basically the same kind of equity capital they had before there was a Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. That's 15%. So that was a number. And I got that written into a bill. The Dodd-Frank hearings gave me an opportunity to testify about that. And I testified, and Senator Vitter of Louisiana joined with Senator Brown, one a conservative, one a very liberal, in a bill which incorporated the 15% equity capital the banks, it never came to a hearing. It never got anywhere because the New York banks opposed it. They would rather be regulated than be forced to make the proper choices. But that's not what the public interest is. The public interest, Peter and I agree completely, the public interest is to protect the public. Not the banks. Now, I guess the changes that that the Fed is talking about with the, the derivatives in this case, th- this is something that uh, reading through the article in the Wall Street Journal that I guess the banking system over in Europe has already kind of put into play yes. a, a version of this at the, at this point. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And it's important also to note that this is not simply a private 
governmental uh, regulatory imposition. The, the, the rule itself re- takes in parallel either one set of restrictions or the banks can opt into the, uh, the ISDA agreements. The ISDA is the International Swaps of Dealers Association, yeah. which is uh, uh, the uh, – so they've written a, a contract that duplicates this idea, the cancellation of immediate repayment uh, clauses. Um, and so that's what they're really trying to get at here. What's interesting, too, and why I think that the regulators are doing some things that are, that are moving in a, in a better direction in some sense is the difference between governance and regulation uh, coming even, even coming from, from the Federal Reserve. So I think of, of capital, equity capital changes as being much more about governance. Okay. Right? Changing the capital structure of these banks is talking about who has what kinds of legal claims on the assets of the company uh, and when versus regulation, which is saying, okay, now you've got to do X, and in the event of Y, you've got to do Z and this kind of thing. Sure. Right? Um, there's overlap between them, of course. But the, the Fed is moving on multiple fronts here. So there's a, an equity capital surcharge requirement for the uh, systemically important financial institutions. Yeah. These... Uh, stress tests and living wills, yep. which are two separate but related conceptions where the Fed is looking at the balance sheets of banks and requiring them to make plans in the event of their failure and saying, if you know it's insufficiently robust, then you're going to have to raise more equity in the equity markets now. Yeah. So it's all hypothetical until the end result when they say your capital structure doesn't look like it could survive the kinds of crises that we're uh, subjecting you to. So I think there's po- positive movement there. I'm not as skeptical as uh, again as Alan about the the utility of or futility I should say of regulation because I think there is some value in the counterfactual. While regulators are never going to be ant- able to anticipate uh, new crises don't don't look like anything they've seen before sure. almost definitionally, they are going to be able to see the things they have seen before and say, okay, well, we've got to make these kinds of changes. And when they succeed, we just don't ever hear about those. Right. I mean, exactly. Successful regulation yep. means that we're just not, we're not watching the thing, the, the shoe that doesn't drop. Let um, me go back to something that Peter said at the very start. The problem here is not that a bank fails. The problem is that when, when the bank fails, no one will take its paper mm-hmm. and they worry. They begin to believe that maybe the other banks have bad paper. So the system closes down. It's not the failure of a single bank. Economists talk about government having a role in dealing with what they what we call externalities, that is, problems which are bigger than the private sector can handle. <clears throat> the problem here is not a bank failure as much as it is a failure of the payment system, right. that no one will accept payments from another bank because they don't know whether they will be able to honor them. That's what we want to prevent. Mm-hmm. And all the regulation of risk taken by a particular bank is maybe helpful, but it doesn't get at the central problem. Yeah. The central problem is the spread of the problem yeah. from yeah. one bank to other banks, that's when you get these failures. Yeah, I, I, I agree 100% with that. And that, of course, was the main idea. In Peter's book, he quotes a lot from the great economist, editor of the magazine, The Economist, Walter Badgett. 
And Badger is all about systemic risk, that is, risks to the system and not risks to the individual banks. Right. You're listening to Knowledge of Wharton on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. We're joined uh, on the phone by Alan Meltzer, who is professor of political economy at Carnegie Mellon University. Also here in the student uh, in the studio, Wharton's Peter Connie Brown. Going back, Alan, to the the twelve percent uh, number, which the the Fed is working at right now in terms of uh, of the equity level. Uh, you mentioned you would like to see fifteen. Uh, is that something that? That, that the Fed could entertain in, in this day and age? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I mean, they can order it. And uh, just as they order them to go from where they were, which is around 5 or 6% equity, yeah. to 12%, they can make it go higher. I don't think they will. But 12% is a lot better than where we were. And it means that if you buy bank stock, you're the principal person at risk. Yep. And, yep. and that's the way the market is supposed to work. Mm-hmm. It's not supposed to be that the, that the depositors are at risk or that the public is at risk. It's supposed to be that the bank is at risk and you're the owner of the bank. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And what's important to to remember about these these changes that might seem trivial. It might seem, oh, what's the difference between twelve percent equity and fifteen percent? Uh, and fifteen percent is quite is 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 modest. I mean, I think there are some who would advocate for for more uh, in the range of twenty to twenty five percent. But here's the point about this, right? Every time you move those goalposts out, yeah. so you're increasing equity. Yep. What you're saying is the kind of Problems, the kinds of failures that c- c- relate to this sort of systemic interconnected risk that will topple the fin- the payment system, have to be ever larger yeah. in order to to succeed in that kind of because the problem crisis. would be greater as because well because the problem has to be greater. So when you're moving from twelve percent to fifteen percent, maybe that seems tiny, but that's that is a world where there are failures and stresses yep. that simply don't topple our system because of that amount of equity. So the question is, well, then, how? What's the science behind this? What's the what's the idea that where? Sh- what's the optimal amount of equity? Yeah. And the answer is, uh, I think, as high as we can get it before sure. we start identifying social costs associated with yeah. those kinds of changes. Yeah. And this is what I mean when I say, uh, you know, that's that's a really it's really hard to identify. Now, on one on one hand, people can bankers can rightly point to the fact that well. By taking deposits, this is debt. So our our business is different because we're deposit taking institutions. This is goes to our our very capital structure. This is why we're different from an underwear company or something like that. Right. Um, okay, all fine and good. But let's look then at the kind of social function that this deposit taking institution is providing versus the costs associated with the capital structures they're proposing it. And that's when I say that's what I mean when I say I haven't read a really coherent economically coherent argument that says why equity capital has to be at 5% or 6%. What is the the thing that happens when we start to transition into a 15% or 20 or 25% world? Because like a lot of things, you know, the problems, as you said, are going to continue to arise. And being able to see them before they happen is a very hard thing to do. It's an impossible thing to do, right? So you have to take a mindset of being able to manage the problem once it happens, correct? Exactly. 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 I I agree completely with Peter. 
you know, uh, how do we know, I would just add this, how do we know where the right amount of equity capital is? Well, we don't. That is, we don't have a model which tells us this is the right number. But we do have the choice that the banks themselves made in a period before the government was involved in trying to solve these problems, and that was 15 to 20 percent. That's why I go to 15 to 20 percent, because large banks like Bank of America, Citibank, J.P. Morgan Chase are much too big for the FDIC yeah, mm-hmm. to be able to, to handle. And the FDIC knows that, so we need to have a system in which they manage their own risks. And as I said before, if the management of the bank isn't cautious, the principal stockholders will say, hey, you know, that's our money you're putting at risk. Yeah. You know, get with it. Alan, thank you very much. We have to end it there. Thank you very much, sir. Greatly appreciate your time. Goodbye. Great to have you, sir. Great to have him. This was great. It was a real pleasure. Absolutely. Peter, great to see you as well. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.